0: I'm so happy to be here again with Lucas Van Os, and uh, we have a job today to tackle the book *Till We Have Faces* by C.S. Lewis. Um, I started reaching out a couple of months ago, looking for somebody who wanted to talk about this with me because the end of the book was very perplexing to me the first time I read it, and I thought I've got to talk this over with somebody. (laughs) Um, Since then, I've reread the end of the book a couple of times, and um, and looked at some things that other people have said and it um, makes a little bit more sense to me now. But Lucas um, agreed to be my conversation partner on this and he's read it. (laughs) And so we don't really know how to tackle it but I will say that it's a little bit like two movies on one screen or Mm. two books in one or something like that. So Lucas, why don't you give me a summary of what you think about the book in general and then we'll go from there.
1: Well, thank you for having me again. It's an absolute pleasure. I loved uh, our former conversations and when Karen emailed some of us being like, I don't understand this book and someone helped me. I was like, <laughs> I don't either. I haven't read it, but I'd love to give it a go because I love speaking on this channel. So uh, I took it on. I read it first. Then I told you like, I'm not ready to do this. I'm gonna have to do some more research. So I read it again and again. And I watched some very interesting lectures about it as well. And I thought it would be a nice idea to just start to sketch the scenery where we are, because um, when you start the book, you're immediately like thrown into this universe and basically it takes place in a kingdom. It's, the kingdom is called Glom and it has some ties to the Greek world. So you can imagine it's like around um, hundred BC or something. And I think it's supposed to be maybe in central or Eastern or Western Europe. So the Greek world is known to them, but it's not like, you know, integrated and it's a very like pagan world and the gods or the God there, his name, her name is Anjit is, seems like a jealous God and the sacred places are are bleak places and there's a lot of animal sacrifice. And so that's a very intense way to start. Like Lewis will describe the pigeon blood and the smell, the drench. Um, and so it's told from the point of view of the oldest daughter of the king, whose name is Oriol. So it's O-R-U-A-L. It's a bit hard to pronounce for me, but um, she's the oldest daughter. And when I first read it, I actually thought she was a slave because the way she experiences the world, is like it's very horrific. Her father, the king, is like almost a tyrant and he bosses her and her her sister around at the start and all these things. So it feels like she's a, she's a servant and she feels like that as well, I feel like in the story. And um, so that's the that's the base premise. Do you have any thoughts thus far before I go uh, on too long? Well,
0: I think you explained very well that the strangeness of it, the book, when you first start reading it, Um, I started it actually a year or two ago by listening to uh, a reading that somebody was doing on YouTube and I found it quite captivating, but I listened to a couple chapters of it and it just felt so weird. I didn't go on
1: Mm. with it. Yeah, and And, a lot of people And
0: then then I picked it up again several months ago and started listening again. Mm. And um, this time it really, well, in between then and now, I had reread the discarded image. And so some things made more sense to me. But Mm -hmm. it is that very strange it does make you think, what was it like in Old Testament times when they had all that blood sacrifice and the yeah. temple was was filled with all of that? And uh, we don't think, usually when we read that stuff, we're not thinking of the sensory overload that must have no. accompanied all of that, right?
1: And it's not described in that way. Like here, it yeah. was so vivid. You feel the experience for sure. Yeah. And what yeah, you said I mean, about I really
0: I understand why Lewis said he felt like this was his best work because yeah um he he really evokes this whole world. Um in in a way he does that also in like the Narnia chronicles, but but the Narnia world is so <laughs> effervescent kind of yeah. you know, right? <laughs> That's a good way. this world is so dark and foreboding and challenging and difficult but yeah. but that may be because of the narrator of the book right mm. because yeah and also it through be- her her mind
1: yeah and because of Lewis himself because he tried to write this story before when he was um he was not a believer so mm-hmm. oriel the the character she she's angry with the gods and she's upset that uh, they they don't really show themselves and they seem to be jealous they seem to be you know, unfair to her. And mm-hmm. so you really see that Lewis struggled with this himself throughout his life, which, which is, I think why it, why he said that this, this book was like haunting him for so long. He, he'd been wanting to write it since, since he was a young man. And, and you really feel that. And what you said before about picking it up um, and then letting it go before reading it again, I think a lot of people have struggled so much with this book uh, partly also why this is not one of his top rated books people don't really speak about it so much at the time it was the worst received book he wrote um, when he just brought it out uh, and at the same time Tolkien for example thought it was his best book and he thought it was his best book like he said so I think it's worth uh, wrestling with it mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've I've certainly done that but, uh, but yeah so she's, she's angry with the gods and
0: well, and why is she angry with the gods?
1: Well, I think the main reason is that um, her sister, her half-sister, Psyche, um, which Psyche comes from the myth Cupid and Psyche. That's why it's a myth well, retold.
0: She's ang- isn't she angry with the gods even from the very beginning?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. It starts at yeah, the start, yeah. but it gets so even before,
0: worse. So before Psyche was born, um, she had a little sister named Redval, mm-hmm. and Redval was... Very cute, had golden curls, and everybody adored her. And uh, Orwell has always been told that she's ugly, yeah, and uh, not not just ugly but hideous. Mm. And so she, uh, I think, that's a big part of why she's angry with the gods, yeah, because she yeah. wasn't favor she wasn't favored by the gods with uh, physical beauty.
1: Yeah, in that sense, for sure. And it's also why she, I think, she was forced to wear a veil when she was younger. At, I think it was at a wedding of the king with uh, with his wife and this is a theme that's going to come back because the, the name of the, the book is of course Till We Have Faces. Originally it was named Bareface but I believe the publisher didn't like that name so much <laughs> but <laughs> she basically wore a veil then and then she goes Bareface um, and later on in the story she takes on the veil again and it's in a way to hide that ugliness that she was told that she had, but it also has some dark motives for herself, um, which is that. Well, it's a, it's a. I think it's one of the bigger themes of, of this of this story, and and the way I think I should speak about it is to first introduce Psyche properly, um, because Psyche is the the third born sister, half sister of Oriole, and she's extremely beautiful, and Psyche. Is, is basically Oriole's greatest love. She, she, she loves her more than anything in the world, but she loves her in a way that some might call possessive. At least that, that's, that's the way we understand it later on in the story. But while she's writing it herself at the start, she feels that she's justified in her love for, for Psyche. But as the story progresses, um, Psyche's beauty is, is almost seen as uh, divine. So the people in the, in the kingdom they they want to touch her and stuff they want to be healed by her and it it turns her into into this almost a a deity let's say and afterwards it turns the other way around (laughs) where psyche turns into a sort of a scapegoat i don't know i don't exactly remember why were there things going wrong in the kingdom is that why why she was
0: yes yes well so at first um well, one of the important things about Psyche is not just her physical beauty, but she's also just a truly lovely person. Mm. She doesn't have any ego. She doesn't. Um, she doesn't make a big deal out of her beauty. She's a lovely person to be around. She's always kind to others, and so it's like she has everything. She's the total package, and Orwell loves her. And as and she tells the story, she loves her because of her beauty and because of her kindness and 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 all of that. And. Uh, but the the people, some of the people of the village get the idea that if they can just touch her, maybe their their offspring will also be beautiful. Mm. And then the whole village gets this idea and they they come rushing out and. Make a whole day of kind of forcing her to be there, you know, to, to touch them and to say kind words over them so that they might be healed. But there's a plague that comes through the village and, and she doesn't heal these people of the plague. And so they blame her for the, Mm -hmm. if I, my recollection is correct, they blame her for the plague. Yeah. And, uh, and at that point, then she becomes a scapegoat for the village that, that until she is sacrificed, then the village will not be healed. It's not. In fact, it's not just the plague, but it stops stops raining. I think they don't have enough rain. Mm-hmm. They, the mm-hmm. crops are failing. One thing after another goes wrong, and they put all the blame on Psyche.
1: Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, and I think it's very interesting because at first I thought maybe she was picked out more more randomly, like it was more a superstitious thing. But now I see the clear. <laughs> the clear causation and I mean to Oriel, this is the end of the world because she is the most important person in her life and so when she's held captive as well and Oriel wants to speak to her oriel um, is more devastated about it than Psyche is which is also another testament to the character of, uh, of Psyche like it's such a beautiful um, person to her and I will get back to the veil thing it's just we have to build up the <laughs> <laughs> the story before we get there because uh can't go too fast but so basically she she gets scapegoated and it's not a public execution that she goes through She is actually brought to i think it's the mountain right mm-hmm. but, um, yeah and the leg as the legend goes at the mountain there is a, a shadowy figure sort of a monster they call him the shadow brute i believe and she's brought there and she is i think tied to a tree of some mm-hmm. sorts and the idea is basically that she will die, but they're just gonna leave her there for dead. And I mean, I think any <laughs> any other person would have probably died there, but she's left, and uh, the king leaves. And Oriel, I think, now wants to wants to go see um, her.
0: Well, she wants to go up and bury the bury. Ah, the yeah, remains, she wants to right? see
1: whatever whatever remains. Yeah. <clears throat> And so, she,
0: so she enlists the captain of the guard to go with her so be, well the captain of the guard doesn't want her to go on her own because it's a very dangerous mm-hmm. trip and and orwell doesn't know the way and so the captain of the guard bardia accompanies her on this very treacherous journey mm. to go and bury her sister
1: yeah and bardia is uh is going to turn out to be an important character in the story quite an, an admirable an admirable man i would say and Oriel grows very fond of him as well and she can trust and rely on him and basically they go to the mountain and I think Bardia stays behind as they as they go near because I think he he feels that he's not of that divine category of the royal blood or <clears throat> however you would um, conceptualize it and she goes there and psyche actually is still present and not only is she present she seems to be glowing radiating like she's she's transformed in a way and that's, of course, a big surprise to Oriel. And she tries to get an explanation out of Psyche. And Psyche says that she was saved by a god. So then who is this god? Um, how does this happen? And what is the experience of a god? Because Oriel still, she has this complaint of the gods, of course. So <laughs> this is, this is I think, where things start to go even more south for her. Her jealousy grows even stronger because she actually fears that this god might not be a god at all, might more might be more of a monster, like the shadow brute we described. And Psyche leads her to the kingdom that she was brought to by this god. But Oreo cannot see the kingdom. And this is something Louis, um it's his own spin on the story, I think, in the original myth of Cupid and Psyche. Mm-hmm. There's not this element, but he makes it so. And I think it's really a beautiful contrast between say a believer and an an unbeliever, where she, she just, she doesn't see anything and psyche is completely immersed in it. And she, she speaks as if she had just gone through a mystical experience and she's still going through it, like completely transformed. And basically Oriel, Oriel doesn't trust it. A and B, she feels that psyche is being stolen from her by the God. And that's, I think, in a very important part of the story, because this is where she is. She feels betrayed. She really is angry with the gods. And she basically blackmails um, Psyche by...
0: Well, don't don't jump too far, because that, okay, okay. That's, Go the ahead. Sec- that's the second time she goes to the
1: mountain. Oh, okay, okay, good. This is why yeah, I yeah, have you, yeah. I'm telling you. Okay.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> but but I think this whole idea is so important about not seeing not being able to see the castle that um that psyche is living in and yes it I think it is a picture of spiritual reality but Mm. but I also um somebody pointed me back this morning to the very first episode I ever did on this channel and said you have to go back and re-listen to that episode so So I went back and re listened to it. And there was some, there was a very interesting idea on there that I had completely forgotten about. And that is this idea that, um, you know, John Verveke is always talking about relevance realization. Mm -hmm. And when I first started the channel, I wasn't aware of him or relevance realization or anything like that. But I had had my own concept of something I called experiential DNA, which basically, it differs from relevance, realization, but they're connected. So experiential DNA would be like, you're a unique individual. I'm a unique individual. We we both have unique physical DNA, but we have also had completely unique experiences from each other. And so things will be relevant to you that are not relevant to me. Um, just because of, maybe conversations that you've had in the past or books that you've read or uh, the way that you were raised, your family of origin, the friends that you've had. So you see the world through a completely different filter than I do. And um, each of us has this thing in us that seems to me almost like it has little attachments on it that catch things as they come through the world. And And we take them in and then that builds us even more and builds us more and more inside so that we become the people that we are. Well, so this is a little bit of a long idea, but um, as I was listening to that video, I I was talking on the video about how there can be a word that means something to a child, but it means a very simple thing to a child. And that word has a completely different meaning to an adult or it might have a different meaning to you than it has to me, just because our our capacity is different for the way that we hear things. Um. And I, I read this quote from Michelangelo on that video, and I had completely forgotten this quote, but Michelangelo said, not even the best of artists has any conception that a single marble block does not contain within its excess. And that is only attained by the hand that obeys the intellect. Mm. So if you think about the marble block as containing every conceivable work of art that any human being could ever come up with, then the, the, the hand that obeys the intellect, has the capacity to bring something out of that marble block by utilizing what might be excess to somebody else but is essential to me if if I'm carving that thing if I could carve so the the excess and the essential are different for each person and and I think that it ties into this thing that orwell was incapable of seeing that palace because of who she was inside. Yeah. And that would be true, whether it's a spiritual reality or even things in the physical world that we don't even notice, but that somebody else for them. It's just shining.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm reminded of, of people that are, let's say, um, that they work in nature or they work in the beach. Like as a child, for example, I would always look down on nature. People, (laughs) people that would like (laughs) look at birds or whatever, and it would just be like, what is there to see here? So I think that's a similar thing where that can be a paradise, right? Right here. So what, right what here. do you
0: see? What do you see now when you look at a bird, Lucas?
1: Oh, everything. I love. I love. Uh, like for me, I don't need to go far just to experience uh, paradise. I I've, I've learned that even my close surroundings here, the little bit of green that I have in my surroundings, um, has so much variety and so much depth. And I see how the how the seasons change that I could never even get bored of um, of a kilometer or of a mile just here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't need to see like I don't need to travel the world to to experience the beauty of nature, let's say. But I still I still like to see the things, of course. But yeah, that 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 definitely shifted, and I think yeah, uh, yeah, it's that same shift that we hope to to see in others and hope to see in the book as well.
0: Yeah, and and so, I mean, I think that this thing about the block of marble also relates to each person's life. So maybe at the beginning of my life or at the beginning of your life, we were like a block of marble so that anything would be conceivable would be potential but every choice that we make over time tilts the the lever a little one direction or another yeah. and Prevents us from seeing some things, or, or we close our eyes to them, or we don't pay attention in quite the way that that we could, yeah. and so we miss things, and then they don't become a part of who we are. And I and I think that's part of what was happening with Orwell. It's not only that sometimes she had a veil over her face that kept others from seeing her, but she had a veil over her face that kept her from seeing. What she might otherwise have seen
1: oh yeah for sure for sure that's why she goes veiled for so long at some point because um, if we continue on the story well actually why don't you fill in the gaps here because i'm not sure what happens between the first visit and the second
0: yeah i don't do. quite remember that either. <laughs> but um well i think it might be that what happens between the first and second visit is that um a whole lot of things happen, actually. Yeah. Bardia decides to train her as a warrior.
1: Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. And
0: then about the same time, her father um, dies. The king dies. And she has to take over as queen because he dies without a son. Mm. And um, somehow, it's not, there's no other male um, relative or something that can yep. take over. And so she takes over as queen. So... <clears throat> To me, one of the really interesting things about this book is like I, I was telling you before we started, there's there's two stories. There's there's the whole first book, which is the story told through her, her lens about her life. And if you just read that book and you didn't read the second book, the, the story that you'd basically get is here's a person who overcame tremendous handicaps
1: mm-hmm.
0: in being... Um, abused emotionally by her father and being um, considered hideous by people and rejected by people all around her and um, having to take on a lot of responsibilities as a young child because her mother dies when Psyche is born. And and she has all these handicaps against her and she's a woman, which in that time was a great handicap. Um, But she learns to be a warrior when she has to take over the queenship, she learns to be a good queen, and and her people consider her to be a good queen. And she she uh, brings things into the kingdom that help people to thrive. And you see all of that play itself out in the in the world. That's the story, and that's the story she's telling about herself. Mm-hmm. And and when you hear that story, it sounds perfectly reasonable and kind of heroic and even though she has all these issues about, you know, she has resentments towards the gods and things like that. You could look at it as the story of this great heroic queen.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And this yeah. is, this is while she is, is veiled also as well, which yeah. I think the veil is almost to me, it's almost the freeze on the actual story story that matters to me because um, from the moment she gets veiled, this is where the story goes like, Oh, she's a queen. She's did all these amazing things. But you feel that inside nothing has changed and nothing is changing in this time so her accomplishments also she speaks about them like she did them but she doesn't take a lot of pride in them she's not really there for them really mm-hmm. um, so even though yes it's a it's a story and it's it can be inspiring or it can be like accomplishments and all these things but it, it, it's not to her she's still stuck and that's yeah. a mind state i feel
0: And and at the same time, she has become very dependent on the friendship of Bardia who, who taught her these um, warrior ways and they often fight battles together. And um, then they often solve problems together and she begins to love him, but it's Mm -hmm. that love that cannot be requited because he's very happily married, has eight children, loves his wife immensely. And, uh, that all has a part to play in the later part of the book, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it's all, to me, it's all very realistic. If you can get past yeah. the thought that this is happening in some pagan kingdom <laughs> 2000 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. years ago, it's really very realistic in the way. Oh, almost certainly explores, um the human thought and human emotion.
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of people love like this. They, they love, and, uh, in a way that is consumptive and in a way that is not agapic, let's say. Like, they wouldn't be able to let it go. Mm-hmm. They're so they're so, let's say, attached, and that's what she is. And I think, yeah, all these all these things that she's doing, it means almost nothing to her because she doesn't have psyche and she doesn't have bardia. So it's almost a repetition of, of what happened. Um,
0: well, yeah. and I think that's a key point. She sees the lens, she sees the world through the lens of what she doesn't have. Exactly. She doesn't have beauty, she doesn't have psyche, she doesn't have Bardia, she doesn't have a husband. She sees the whole world through the lens of what she doesn't have. Mm. And don't we all do that? (laughs) Often. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, So, So um so so then she goes to the mountain a second time for some reason. Oh, she, she gets kind of obsessed with this idea that that psyche is not actually being cared for by uh, a God, but that it might be some human hunter or somebody who was out in the woods, who is actually sexually abusing her and taking advantage of her. And so she feels like she has to go back and convince her to get away from this guy. Um, and the, the the strange part of it, when I mean, when I first read it, I thought, this is kind of weird and icky because this this God that has her in this castle will not show himself to her. Mm-hmm. So so when they when they love each other in the night, she can't see his face. She can't see who he is. And uh, I thought that was a little strange. But but that comes into the story because um when, when Orwell goes back to the mountain, she she kind of blackmails Psyche into um, trying to force him to see his face. And Psyche says, no, I can't do that because he made me promise that I would never put pressure on him to see his face. But Orwell injures herself in a particularly brutal way and says, if you don't do this for me, I'm going to kill myself, and I'm going to show you that I can kill myself. And so she stabs herself through the arm and bleeds everywhere as a way of proving how firm she is about this. And Psyche, because Psyche loves Orwell, she says, "Okay, I will. I will shine the light on him at night." And uh, and then that, of course, has the result of him. Um, going away disappearing whatever and then she's left the castle everything goes away so she's left to the elements
1: and then it, this is where she later turns to uh, i guess a deity or at least in the conception of where well you know, late, because- later
0: on so we don't find that out i mean we just we know that she has the story moves on from there and mm-hmm. uh, it isn't until later in uh orwell's queenship that she becomes kind of weary of her life as a queen and she decides Mm -hmm. i need to get out and see the world (laughs) yeah (laughs) which is kind of funny like oh i think i'll take a trip to hawaii
1: (laughs) yeah exactly
0: but but in that uh in that world going out and seeing the world meant getting all of your um servants and and helpers together to carry the luggage and everything to just go on a trip for a few weeks maybe 15 miles away from home but for her that was something she'd never seen and uh and one of the things she comes upon is this little temple or little sanctuary place where and this is many many years later where they are worshiping psyche Mm. um but they tell a different story of psyche than what she had, than what she had written in the book.
1: Yeah, and it's a story that, that angers her very much because to her it's a completely, it's a different account than what we get in the, in the novel itself. Yeah, I think and it, it makes says
0: her that, look bad.
1: Yeah, it makes her look really, really, <laughs> really, really bad. And I think it's also mentioned, I'm not sure, but I think it's mentioned that she does see the kingdom. Uh, do, is that so? Do you remember this? That she is able well, to see?
0: yes it it said that she was able to see it Mm. and there actually was a point early on where she she kind of saw something and then she kind of talked herself out of seeing it yeah and so you know it the story that's told in the temple may very well be true that she had seen it but she refused to acknowledge that she had seen it
1: ah that's an interesting yeah that's a really good perspective actually because it makes more sense of the let's say the power of her of her attachment Mm -hmm. to pull her out of that, to pull her out of being able to see it. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And then out of her anger over that whole thing, she decides to just um, kind of take on the gods. She's going to, she's going to go and have her complaint against the gods because she feels like she's been so mistreated in all of this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. She writes, I think she writes that the, the complaint in in elaborate words, and it takes her a long time. And I think that um, it's also worth mentioning the the fox. I think we haven't even mentioned him at all. Um, fox is an important figure in the story. He's a he's a Greek slave who comes into the kingdom when Oriol is, is a young girl, and he's he's a learned man from Greece, so he he knows the philosophy, and he's very much uh, responsible for Oriole's worldview as well. So I think I would describe maybe as more a bit of a rationalist, maybe Mm -hmm. rationalist philosopher. He has a very particular understanding of the gods, let's say. Um, So not exactly a believer. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think this is also why she's able to write this complaint like this, because she, she was taught so well, and she has quite an intellectual understanding of all of this. And then she comes out with this complaint and (laughs) and it's her life's work and then I think this is where we jump to the last part is it not mm-hmm. and I think this is where the one you've read many times so I'd love to uh to let you describe it because you're probably a better at that than I am
0: well the, is the last part that was the first time I read it was very confusing to me and very troubling to me and and today it made more sense but I sort of just let it wash over me in a way so Mm. it's not exactly that it tells a story as that it she has a, a shift in in mindset she has a shift in perspective that takes place um partly because um bardia becomes ill and um, at first, she's very resentful that he's not there to help her. Um, and she goes through some kind of illness herself. And when she wakes up from that illness, she finds out that Vardia may be very close to death. And so she's terribly upset about that and um, wonders why nobody, why she couldn't have gone to see him. And, and um, the... The local temple priest says well if you had done that that would have only made it worse because he would have tried to get out of his sickbed to do whatever you needed because you know he was always wanted to be there for you and so then she's not even able to see him and he dies and so she goes to see his widow to offer condolences and the widow says don't you realize that it's everything that you put him through that emptied him out to the place where he had no strength to overcome this illness. And And Oral is kind of like, what are you talking about? You know? Well, because he he was determined to be the best um, soldier and the best counselor that he could be um, for you. So that when he came home at night, he was completely exhausted and wiped out and had nothing left for me or the children. And in fact, he would be so tired, he couldn't even eat, but he would get up early in the morning the next morning and and all of a sudden Orwell saw the world to a completely different lens like. But I, you know, I loved him, but did I do that to him? I thought I loved him, but then I did that to him and. Could that have been what I was doing in all of these other places where I thought I loved somebody and then I was actually using them for my own purposes? And um, that creates this whole mind shift. And then she goes through this series of very strange dreams. Do you remember the dreams?
1: (laughs) There's
0: one one that I, I, I really want somebody to explain to me where the king her father comes back to her and takes her to the pillar room, which is the room where they make all the decisions. And um, he takes her over to the corner and there are two pickaxes and a shovel. And he, he makes her work with him to dig a hole in the center of the pillar room. And then he grabs hold of her and they fall through the hole. And then they land on their feet, many feet down. And then they're in another room, but this whole room is, exactly like the pillar room but this one's made of earth and then he finds some more tools in that room and makes her dig with him and they dig that one out and they get down into a lower place that's very small and but the same kind of a pillar room and in that room he reveals to her well he i think he shows her the mirror when she looks in that mirror, she realizes that she is unget. She is Mm. this ugly old crone God that, that people were, people were worshiping this old stone God, goddess. And uh, she gets this idea. Well, I am that ugly old thing. And I just don't get that dream. I mean, what is this all about digging the hole and going into another room and then digging the hole and going into another room <laughs> I mean is uh, it like it's going down into her psyche or um
1: I think it's definitely digging down to the depths it's interesting also part of this dream is that as soon as she sees the king she has to take her veil off he's like take it off you know this is silly while she was wearing the veil she was queen and in a way it was to hide what was underneath um but as soon as the king is back, she turns back into Oriole. So she's no longer the queen, she's Oriole again. Mm. And as Orioles, she starts, she starts digging down and down. I think it may have something to do, like you say, with, with digging into herself, going to the very foundations and then finally coming down and seeing what she has turned into. She mm. has turned into the very gods that she hates, the, the, the traits, the, the, the jealousy, the, the consumptive love. But I'm sure that there's more to be said about the, the digging in particular. I sadly do not have the Jonathan Pajot symbolism uh, eyes yeah. <laughs> to, to see this. He, he would probably be able to tell you. <laughs>
0: has, he, has he done an episode on this book?
1: I don't think so. I, oh. I looked up like in YouTube. um, no, am waiting for that one. <laughs> Yeah, we should get that because he's recently, like I said, spoken about the trilogy, the Ransom trilogy. So maybe, maybe I'd hope yeah. so. I really wonder what he... Uh, what kind of insights he has, because you just know he has like a ton more than anyone else.
0: <laughs> well, and, and then she has one more dream where she's in. um, Well, maybe a dream it may not be a dream. Yeah, she's um, speaking before the gods. And she has this book that she's written with all of her accusations against the gods, which she's going to read to them. But when she starts reading it, she realizes she's not reading the book that she wrote. She's saying other things that she sort of feels compelled to say, and those things are revealing this inner darkness and this inner envy and resentment and bitterness and jealousy that she'd had all these years and how the consequences of that had affected all the people in her life. And uh, and then the, the fox who died long before is also in this place or in this dream and takes her over to see. This almost like movie screens, uh, a room that has these walls with paintings on it, and then the paintings begin to move and psyche is is in the in this picture moving picture. And somehow she gets the idea from watching these pictures of psyche that. um, Psyche had taken on. Some of the. Psyche had paid for some of Orwell's sins, mm. but then Orwell was paying for. I don't know. It's very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe I can find a quote from there that would make more sense of it. But um, do you remember that that vision that she had? The, those
1: visions, yeah. I think she's she's shown basically how she was so possessive of psyche she is she is shown exactly what she did wrong she's shown all her sins and the same I think with her reading out her complaint um, exactly because it's not what she thinks she wrote down and also in a different voice almost she speaks it like she hears herself talking she finally gets the outside perspective like hey this is actually what I've become and I think this this is the first time she's, she's been in that perspective for so long and now she takes the shift and she's able to see everything she did wrong. And, and the flashbacks I think greatly the attribute to that because this is where she sees the situation between her and Psyche as well. And Psyche is the person she cared about most and to see that she hurt her. I think that takes the biggest toll on her and I think it teaches her the most. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So, um, and and at the very end, she's taken, uh, it, so it, there's this place where, um, maybe I'll just read a little bit.
1: Mm-hmm. Go ahead.
0: If Psyche had not held me by the hand, I should have sunk down. <clears throat> she had brought me now to the very edge of the pool. The air was growing brighter and brighter around, around us as if something had set it on fire. Each breath I drew let me into new terror, joy, overpowering sweetness. I was pierced through and through with the arrows of it. I was being unmade. I was no one. But that's little to say. Rather, Psyche herself was in a manner no one. I loved her as I would once have thought it impossible to love, would have died any death for her, and yet it was not, not now she that really counted or if she counted and oh gloriously she did it was for another's sake the earth and stars and sun all that was or will be existed for his sake and he was coming the most dreadful the most beautiful the only dread and beauty there is was coming the pillars on the far side of the pool flushed with his approach I cast down my eyes. Two figures, reflections. Their feet to Psyche's feet and mine stood head downwards in the water. But whose were they? Two Psyche's, the one clothed, the other naked? Yes, both Psyche's, both beautiful, if that mattered now, beyond all imagining, yet not exactly the same. You also are Psyche, came a great voice. I looked up then and it's strange that i dared so she from her father she gets the message you also are unget and now here from this this vision she's having with psyche and this other most dreadful most beautiful he you also are psyche but I saw no God, no pillared court. I was in the palace gardens, my foolish book in my hand. The vision to the eye, I think, faded one moment before the oracle to the ear. That was four days ago. They found me lying on the grass. So, and at this point, they take her back into the uh, into the queen's bedroom and...
1: and uh,
0: Then that's pretty much the end of the book. She she died at that just about at that moment. But but that's her last vision. She gets this picture that she was unget. There was a part of her that was unget, but then also she is psyche. And and I think I have some puzzlement about that.
1: Okay, there's a lot. What did
0: you make of that?
1: Well. One thing I want to add also is that after she's read out her complaint, um, she doesn't get a response, but she doesn't need to. Because just by virtue of her listening to herself, she's like, Mm -hmm. I get it. I don't need an answer from the gods. That would just be more Mm -hmm. words combating with words. Uh, So she's at peace with that. But what I like about the ending, which you mentioned, Psyche and um, Angit, I feel that it's almost um, mercy and judgment, let's say. She gets fully judged by becoming Angit and Angit in this case is this jealous God, goddess. But Psyche on the other hand, I think symbolizes the good in a sense, uh, beauty as well. And so even though yes, um, oriel you were wrong, you were, you were definitely possessing these people um, in a way that, that you should not possess people that you love. You're also Psyche. So you're also forgiven. That that's how I see it, kind of, mm. and that that that's I, I guess that's that's Christ symbolizes that you you mm-hmm. get both of those, but for me the mercy um, is the strongest because we're mortals and we're all going to be <laughs> sinning for sure.
0: Well, right, and and I guess what I also saw just as you were talking is that psyche gave herself to him and was loved by him and. Yeah dwelt with him and now um orwell is also psych as as psyche she is loved by him she she has she has seen her own need of him she has seen her own sin and she is loved by him and she will dwell with him for yeah.
1: only after she has seen her own sin yeah yeah that's that's necessary for redemption yeah salvation yeah it's <laughs> <That's> beautiful <laughs> yeah especially wow. the passage you just read was like, Wow,
0: yeah, um, yeah, it's quite a book. And, <laughs> and I think one of the things that makes it so powerful, I mean, we're just telling the story right now. so yeah, you can't get the feeling of it at all. But when you're in the book, you are you are there. you are in that environment and it it awakens all of your sensory, perception to what that world must have been like and you get to know the people so well that you almost feel like you could once you come once you're not reading the book anymore you could call them up or send them an email or something and ask them a yeah.
1: question yeah
0: right because people are so real
1: no absolutely i think that that's what i I, <laughs> I emailed you when i was halfway i think and i was like i don't read fiction a lot but this is some of the real stuff like this is I'm, I'm there so vivid, you know, Mm -hmm. for, for better and for worse, because you get to get the bleakness of the situation, but, but you also get that, that infinite beauty that you get toward the end. It's that's why I would really, anyone that, that, that listens to this, I would really recommend, please read this book. It's not that long. And, um, (laughs) it's one to uh, read again and again. So definitely worth, worth getting.
0: Yeah. And, and I also think it's one that you can, you can actually listen to, um, yeah. there's a there's a very good. Uh, you, uh, in fact, I'll put this in the description, there's a guy that does a reading of it, um, chapter by chapter on his YouTube channel. Mm. So, you, I mean, you can only get a chapter at a time, but then you just click to the next one in his series. And uh, he does an excellent job, really excellent job. And listening to it in some ways makes it even more real because. Yeah. He, he dramatizes it in a very powerful way. So um, I think you can get it both ways. And I listened to it and then I read it. And um, and even then there's a lot of depth there. So
1: <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I think we got to unleash uh, Jonathan Pajot on this. Because, <laughs> you know, even when I'm, I'm reading anything, I'm obviously missing a lot of it. But then there's also the interpretation that I'm missing mm-hmm. and the insight and the depths and the knowledge of Lewis and the knowledge of the, the original myth and all these things. So I'd be very very curious to hear brighter minds.
0: Um, yeah, I would be interested is- in understanding, is there okay, did Lewis pick that myth to write about just because he had that insight about how the palace should have been invisible? Because in the original myth, there's the three sisters, and two of them are just jealous of Psyche, and that's why they sabotage her, because of their mm-hmm. jealousy. So that would make it more like um, Cinderella, right? Yep. The two jealous sisters, and uh, it would make it more like Cinderella or something like that. Um, but Lewis kind of turned it around, and instead of Orwell being jealous of Psyche the way Orwell tells the story, at least she was jealous of the God because the God had stolen Psyche away from her. Yeah. But was she really jealous of Psyche? I mean, maybe that's the story that you get in the second book is that she really was jealous of all that Psyche had, but she just couldn't see that that's what was driving her.
1: I think that's possible. And I think, again, it reflects Lewis himself. I think one of the reasons he wanted to write this story, and initially he wanted to write it from uh, what is now Oriole's perspective, is because he identified with that. So he was angry at the gods, I think, at first. But maybe he didn't realize that his, his anger or envy of the gods was actually an anger or envy of being that good. Because he only got to that goodness, I think, when he accepted it. When he accepted, let's say, that, that, that love and when he started loving himself in that way. Of course, I'm not a, a, a Lewis scholar, but I can imagine that this is how it went because I personally feel that I experienced it this way um, in my life. That once you transform within, that you can seek properly. And I really do believe that you can then see the truth before you are blinded by your uh, ignorance and jealousy, because I do think those are things that, that will blind you.
0: Well, I mean, let's go back to the block of marble there. <laughs> that that the, um, the work of art is in, for Michelangelo, the work of art consisted of chipping away the excess. And is that how God is working in our lives is in, um, chipping away the excess of all this garbage that we carry around Mm. and, and chipping that away so that the, the real person that we are can come forward and, um, and recognize him and, um, Dwell in his palace you know oh yeah
1: i think uh, i i think so i remember an image of um i, I don't have the marble stone but of the idea of deadwood Did you carry deadwood with you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that going to hell is like you're burning off the deadwood and if you're 99 percent that then you're <laughs> you're in trouble <laughs> but that you need those flaming swords of judgment to get rid of it um so not exactly the same image but i think it works in the same way is that that is exactly what we are uh, made to do? I think that's what judgment eventually is, and it's happening in real time. I feel. I think you. Th- th- there's a there's a want to to get there, but if you don't aim at it yourself, it's not going to happen, and you're just going to gather more of that excess, as you say. I think that's that's not going to well, stop.
0: One one of the uh, one of the marriage. Teachings that I heard years ago was that um, we tend to end up with a partner that exemplifies for us the sandpaper principle, because our partner rubs off all our rough places and we rub off all their rough places. <laughs> <laughs> but sandpaper is not very pleasant; it can be painful at times. Yeah. Um, but but um, it's in dwelling in close proximity with another person that we find out how selfish we are and uh, all of those things that orwell never had to learn basically because because she was by herself she 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 could be her own um she could be her own person you know how peterson always says that we offload our um sanity by being in relationship with other people But Orwell never really let herself be in relationship with other people because because she thought she was so hideous and she thought that no man would ever love her. And and so she never really let herself be in close relationship with anybody who could have called her to account. Now, she was in a close relationship with Bardia, but she was the queen and he was her servant. And so he's not going to hold her to account. He's not going to... um, have any opportunity to rub yeah. off rough places right
1: yeah that's good actually i, I never thought about it like the, the hierarchy impedes him from from doing that mm-hmm. and i I like this principle like you have to love yourself before you should love another because it's only when you love yourself that you can love another truly because mm-hmm. otherwise it it turns into exactly what it turned into with with oil, i would i would say
0: well yeah i mean when when christ says um Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Mm. If you don't know how you would have them do unto you, how do you know how to do unto them anything? If you don't know what would be the good for you, then how do you know how to be the good for another? Right. Yeah. 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 So if you haven't figured out who you are and if you haven't learned to love yourself, then there's you don't have any framework to know how to love another person.
1: Yeah. That's pretty beautiful. Do you think that someone has to fully love themselves before they can enter into a relationship or do you think it can also be learned within the relationship?
0: It better, we better be able to learn it within a relationship because that's, it's a long road to get to on all of those scores. I think, um, Mm. Because I think, especially if you start out too early loving yourself, you know, you can level yourself in a very unhealthy way. That, yeah. um, in a little, in a tiny way, that may be the story of, of Redival. We haven't talked too much about Redival. Yeah. Um, the the middle sister Redival, was also kind of pretty, but very um, vain and um, flighty. And so Orwell really resented her <clears throat> and looked down on her throughout her whole life and was completely irritated by her for most of it. And it isn't until very, very late in this story. Well, so Redival kind of has a, when she's young, she has a fling with one of the courtiers whose name was Taran. And uh, when the king finds out about it, He's furious because royal blood cannot mix with non-royal blood, and so he has Taran castrated. And Taran ends That's up le- Taran ends up leaving the kingdom. And then years, 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 years later, this um, this very rich eunuch who is uh, a servant to a much bigger kingdom than her kingdom comes to visit and is negotiating on behalf of the of his king with um, orwell and she's looking at this guy and he's enormously fat and all fancied up in all kinds of fancy clothes as eunuchs were i guess in those days and uh, she sees something in him that's kind of familiar and she says are you taran And he laughs and he says, oh, yes. (laughs) He says, you know, how's your sister doing? (laughs) He says, you know, that was the best thing that ever happened to me because I never would have become as famous and as wealthy as I am now if that hadn't happened to me. Mm. And But then he tells Orwell, he says, you know, um, the reason Redival came to me was that she was so lonely. And Orwell says, what do you mean? Well, First the fox came and you spent all your time with the fox and you didn't spend time with Redival anymore. And then Psyche was born and then you were all in love with Psyche and then Redival was nobody to you. But Redival just felt so alone and lonely and so that's why she ended up the way she was. And all of a sudden, like the scales fall off of Orwell's eyes, you know? Did I do that? Did I do that to Redival? And then she realizes that indeed. She was all about herself. She wasn't at all concerned about taking care of her younger sister. And uh, as a result, Redival ended up being a very vain and fussy and uh, kind of broken person.
1: Yeah, I think this is another one of those examples of the perspective change. I mean, Redival was signed off from the start of the story, I feel like. Yeah. It's like you don't have to pay attention to her. She's just this Uh vain, terrible person. Yeah. But to think yeah. that Oreo kind of made her like that, I think, is so powerful.
0: Yeah, and so then you never get a picture of what she could have been, you know. Exactly.
1: Yeah, that's sad. I think it's something to think about in our own lives. I think um, I definitely have to say, like, when I grew up, I had my own friends, and I told you about my my life, where I um, let go of a lot of friends because I felt that. I really need the time to develop on my own. And I've had a lot of dreams, like a lot of dreams over the years of those fans being like very angry with me and accusing me, let's say. Now, looking back on it, I think this is not how they actually feel. And I've spoken to some of them, but it's at least true in principle that if you think you are better than other people and you can go on your own, you actually might be limiting their potential because, you know, you could be also a force for good instead of just saying no to them. You could be saying yes or yes, you could. Um, And in this society, we have so much opportunity to pick and choose people, pick and choose relationships, pick and choose friends, pick and choose um, almost anyone at this point that we almost forget that by nature human beings are much more community oriented and the community and the family is what you're usually born in so that's what you got the church closest to you is what you got you, you can't just go to another city if you don't have a car or whatever and and maybe that that's that's part of our duty and it's not to say that I think it's necessarily wrong to to sometimes let go of people but I do think there is often a lot more there than you might think because a lot of that is, is up to you. So that's uh, something I should tell myself (laughs) sometimes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That's a really good point. I mean that, um, even if you do by virtue of circumstance have to, move away from some people it, it's still a good thing to go back and keep in touch and mm. um, remind people that they have value in your life right yeah <laughs> but it it does become a challenge as you get older and you have a broader and broader friendscape sort of <laughs> how do you um, manage so many friendships And and maybe that's you know, I I forget which one of is it, is it Wein, Brett Weinstein, or one of these guys is always talking about how you can only manage a community of 150 people. Yeah, that's the that. Dunbar
1: number, I believe.
0: Is that what it is? Okay.
1: I, yeah, that's what it called.
0: Yeah, beyond that, you can't really manage. And I certainly understand that, because I've lived in a lot of different places over my life, many different states and countries and developed friendships in all of them and i've been to a lot of different churches and yeah and schools and all of those things and at a certain point you're just i'm i can remember times in my life when i just felt inundated with people like i I can't handle one more friendship yeah that sounds weird because now that i'm older and i live in california everybody's moved away so i had this group of like 10 women friends that we would meet once a month and We had great fellowship and all of that. And now in the last three years, all of them, every single one has moved to another state. (laughs) Wow. And so, you know, where 10 years ago, I would have been saying, I can't handle any more friends. I'm like, now, will you be my friend? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you have to be careful what you ask for, right?
1: (laughs) No, for sure. But I mean, also just think about it. Like how many people, uh, historically speaking, would have been able to do what you did in your lifetime? moved all these different places like
0: oh yeah i mean do people even realize that this 150 year chunk of time that that comes up to this chunk of time there's been no time in the history of the universe that's like this last 150 years exactly um where up until 150 years ago almost everybody was so poor they couldn't move beyond their own village Mm. and um and And then in 150 years, we get trains and planes and automobiles and and computers and cell phones and um, things that no one could have ever conceived of prior to 1800 or 1850. And, And I mean, it's just so weird. That in the whole history of the world and that we should have ended up getting born into this particular time period it just seems very weird to me
1: it is very strange and the technology may grow exponentially but we don't we're still human beings we're the same yeah the same human beings we were uh, a thousand years ago and that's why i think we're kind of we're not built for this life in many ways so acting according to our nature is probably going to help. That's why I think a lot of people are seeing the the value in community now and the value in face-to-face interaction. And, and yeah, just think about cell phones. And for example, my girlfriend, she has trouble sometimes keeping in touch with people over the cell phones because they're kind of there, but they're not really there. I mean, they're within our access, like a couple of... Uh, of tabs and, and you can like send a, a text message to them, but it's just not the same. And like you said, with the 150, that is really a limit. And so, yeah, I don't think we are built for this. So I try to keep things as human as possible. For example, I try not to even send as many texts. I just like send the voice memo or call people, which some people find annoying, but <laughs> I think it's better in many ways. It's like, who still calls? And I'm like, I'll, I'd love to call. It's much easier. <laughs>
0: I, I do think we need to get back to that. Um, I, I have some friends that like to talk about deep things, but they like they like to do it over text. Well, so not for me. Having these really deep conversations on text is <laughs> very difficult because yeah, you, you you know you're trying to answer deep questions, and you're you know whether you're doing it with voiceover or with thumbs or fingers or whatever on a phone, it's like ridiculous, um, and. And when you talk to somebody, you can hear their voice and you can kind of tell how is this going down is, you know, are, are we still in relationship here? Because you can say things that. At least over the I mean, when I was growing up, that's the only way we had of communicating with each other and our and our phones had cords on them. So you had to stay in the same room with your phone <laughs> while you were talking you know? and uh, but. It was a sort of a meme that when you're in high school, you spend your whole evening on the phone talking with friends and oh, yeah. parents would be so frustrated, you know, you're just on the phone for two or three hours with different friends. Um, but at least you were connected to people, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and know so many people are alone. And uh, the only connections are very superficial, if at all, if they're there at all. So do you think, see
0: that in your country as well, or is that just an American phenomenon?
1: No, it's here for sure. I mean, video games don't know borders. They they take people. Um my country, I find it sometimes hard to assess because I'm in contact with quite a lot of people and I don't know a lot of like deep gamers and stuff, because the people I do know are either from the gym or from a university or like people that do a lot of in-person stuff but i have worked with teenagers trying to uh tutor them and i've seen a big shift in the way they behave and their social capabilities and the way they dress even like they come into their sports stuff and like you know it's just the the bar has definitely been lowered so i i feel a tremendous sense of responsibility and lifting it up because i am of this generation and i think i um can definitely help with that but usually the u.s is a bit different than europe but it's it's very similar (laughs) in broad terms
0: well so when you go to church how does the the pastor dress
1: depends on which church so i've been to um catholic church and orthodox church in my area and i've actually been uh it's it's another conversation but i've been struggling a lot with finding what's right but all that said in orthodox church they're dressed uh...
0: yeah well they have that
1: <laughs> at catholic church it's, it's they, they have like a specific garb for sure mm-hmm. and like certain colors depending on the um let's say on the theme or i don't know how it works i think they have like specific like i'm not learning it at all so please don't judge me about this but i haven't been to protestant church but i think my family when they go they also still wear this this garb i don't know how it is for you
0: well the the funny thing i've noticed is that so i i became a christian in 1980 and back then the pastor used to wear a suit and tie and, and oh. in, a, in a protestant church yeah, yeah we don't so, get that and, here um, but now and over the years it's just gotten more and more and more than than for many years up until the last few years it was at least a button-down shirt and a pair of dress pants and now it's a sweatshirt and blue jeans and really they're trying to be relevant I think
1: yeah that's interesting <laughs> they're
0: not trying not to scare people away or something but I just, I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, and as I, as I've experienced it growing up, we've always had the person like the pastor up front wearing something specific like a garb, a white, usually a white toga or something. Mm, yeah. Something like that.
0: No, not in the Protestant churches these days.
1: That's interesting. Yep. How are you finding it uh there? Because you know, I I struggle a lot, like I said, I struggle a lot with finding a right place and <laughs> Coming back to what I said before, maybe that's not the right way to look at it, but I can imagine that you, um, because you have so much, let's say, having a Dutch word in my mind, you have so much exposure to, so um, like orthodoxy and to all these other like even vervaking with all these things and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you struggle with 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 your church or no? Well, I mean, of course well, I mean always...
0: I, I'm super thankful that the church we're in is, um, has really solid, very good teaching.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <clears throat> and um, and it focuses a lot on community. <clears throat> Real big, strong focus on community. So there are a lot of home groups and um, and the home groups meet either once a week or every other week. Our home group meets every other week. We have a home group that meets here in our home that given any particular week, we might have between 12 and 15 people. And that's a wonderful way to build community. And then the church also does all kinds of activities in the community to help um, the schools and the the uh, nonprofit organizations around and um, reach out into the neighborhoods. And so there's a lot of community activity. And um, and then of course, just the people helping with all the activities in the church that creates communities too. So the the hospitality committee and the, the Sunday school teachers and all of these things that are going on are building teams and community in the church. So all of that is really good. Um, And I think the thing that I miss the most, and that's maybe because I'm older, I don't know. um, I miss there being more of a focus on what I guess in the Catholic and Orthodox churches, you would call the liturgy, where there is a call and response or where we're reading the scriptures and then responding to the scriptures. That used to be a part of church in in the in the Protestant tradition for a long time, and as they've tried to get more and more relevant, that has sort of gone out the window. Mm. And then the music <clears throat> used to be at least a mix of hymns and contemporary music. Now it's just all this contemporary music that i'm I hesitate to even call it music because. <sighs> There's some sort of a trend nowadays to develop this kind of music that's more, do you know the term recitative?
1: Um, no, recitative.
0: Recitative, yeah. So it's a musical term that means you're <clears throat> you're sort of telling a story with the melody, but it's not, so it's not really a melody. You're just sort, okay, of, okay. Just sort of like um, what do they call that? Stream of consciousness. It's sort of like stream of consciousness. And then the the singers have this tendency to try to be edgy, I guess, to not exactly hit the note, but to kind of waver around the note. So you're not, if you can't quite hear the instruments, you're not quite sure what the note is and you don't know how to sing with it. And so maybe you just have to sit there and listen to them. And that's not the way music is supposed to be from my perspective, growing up in the church was always, we participate together in the yeah. singing of worship music. And so that has been <clears throat> a challenge for me. <clears throat> and it is a challenge for me on another score, which I think is one of the purposes for the singing of worship music in the in the churches that I have been in since I became a Christian when I was 32 the purpose of the music was to kind of plant this biblical truth deep in your heart, because music helps you to remember it. And you have these hymns memorized because of the music. And so you're carrying these biblical truths around with you during the day and singing psalms and hymns and musical songs, you know, like the scripture says. But this new music doesn't plant that way. It just doesn't it's really hard to remember. It just kind of goes off into space mm-hmm. somewhere. And uh, so I think we're missing that. And then there's these waves of what's in. So this year's music is different than last year's music and the music of the year before where it used to always be that all the generations could gather together around the same music, because we all yeah. have this common memory of these songs and when I was a missionary back in the eighties, I could go to Haiti and be in a Haitian church and they would have some of their own songs, but they would also have some of the hymns and we could sing together. Or if I was in Japan, there would be some of those Japanese churches that would be singing some songs that we could all sing together because we had this common um, musicology that, that drew the church together. And um i think with this new way of doing music which i don't know where that comes from is that that everybody has to have their own creativity or i I mean i don't i don't understand what's happening
1: yeah oh but that's a great point though i really like this idea of if well the music is there also to bind you together because it's Mm -hmm. i mean it's religious so that, that that's the core function yeah that's it's yeah i find it i find it pretty puzzling that that's happened but then again there's a lot of things a lot of things are very puzzling nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so that's just a that's just a part of it. But um yeah, it's I struggle so, so much uh, personally. Being like, what's the right place? What's the right thing to do? And then I listen to and I'm trying to figure this out. What is a pathway for it? Because I'm trying to solve the meaning crisis as well. <laughs> Well, I mean,
0: I, you know what I think, isn't it, Jonathan, he always just says, find a church and go to it, (laughs) you know, Yeah, but it's not what he
1: did, (laughs)
0: but, but maybe, maybe the one you go to, it is kind of, um, kind of Jordan Peterson's thing where you, you reach towards some high goal and you, you move towards that and maybe that doesn't end up being the ultimate goal, but it gets you moving and you're, you're kind of moving in the right direction and you end up having to, to veer off and do something else. But, but at least you are, at. I guess I'm a little bit of a naive person because I believe that, that um, within any church, organization or any church denomination there are believers and there are unbelievers (laughs) and so there are believers in all the different denominations i know some denominations have the idea that theirs is the only way and if you don't worship with them you're not actually a believer but I find that a little hard to swallow because yeah. I've met people from some of these denominations that don't seem to be um, abiding in the word. But I've also met other peoples in those, people in those denominations that definitely are abiding in the word. And I've also met people in, in some of these lame Protestant churches that are making such terrible mistakes that are definitely very... Avid believers and yeah, uh,
1: anywhere, anywhere, I guess. Yeah.
0: And so I think the point is to not forsake the assembling together of one another and to yeah. sing and sing spiritual songs together and all the things that the Lord tells us to do, which we can't do if we're just being by ourselves. Because that ember dies if you just kick it off to the side of the fire you know but if all the yeah. embers are brought together then then we make a flame together so so i thank think it's you. important to find a church and plant yourself there and if it doesn't end up being the ultimate place for you you can you can move on you know and you'll learn something from it you'll learn something yeah. from the experience
1: thank you for your words it's always I, helpful to yeah, uh, i'm to and get like a different say, perspective a
0: lot of people that will disagree with me so
1: no but uh, of course that's otherwise I wouldn't listen because <laughs> I want to hear as many different people um, with as many different perspectives as possible so tell In me turn,
0: about what's you've been doing on your channel lately
1: well I've been just been uploading uh, once a week that's uh, that's how I work I just like to uh, do things consistently that are sustainable so one, once a week is is doable for me. So I started a podcast a couple of months ago, shortly after we did our first together. And it has been incredible for me to do. It's like, um, yeah, I feel like I found what I should be doing, you know, like finding my part to play that I spoke about before. Having conversations has been, uh, yeah, life changing. I mean, in general, but then recording them is really fun to me because it allows me to to train this and to reflect on the conversations and to to most importantly, share them. So that's what I've been doing. I've mostly, I've been trying to to seek wisdom in this time. That's, uh, that's one of my core things that I'm trying to do. And so I speak to whoever I find interesting. And that is actually most people. That is the garbage man across the street. And that is <laughs> some people from the little corner. I have some very interesting family members, uh, surprisingly or unsurprisingly. And so I've just been doing that, that uh, every week. And it's been yeah, like I said, it's just been incredible. I feel like this is really something I'm made to do. You do so, have yeah.
0: interesting family members. <laughs> yeah, your 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 brother and your father are both very interesting. I don't know if you have other family members that you've had on your show, but
1: no, not yet. But they're my brother and my father are the most, uh, let's say talkative. And they like the the topics in the little corner. Mm-hmm. And actually, fun thing. I don't know when is when do you think this is gonna upload? Because
0: uh, Friday, Friday, two or three weeks from now, probably. Okay,
1: <laughs> because this weekend well, it doesn't matter for now. But <laughs> this weekend, my brother uh, Aaron he's uh, he's speaking at a festival in Germany where Paul Van der Dyk will be. So. That's like a, this little corner thing that's happening in Germany. So oh, I would have said your
0: brother's speaking at that um, breakwater
1: festival. Breakwater
0: festival, yeah. Yeah.
1: So I've been interviewing him, and actually we're meeting tomorrow. I'm meeting Paul in Amsterdam, and then on Thursday they're coming to my city, so that'll be fun. Oh, but, um
0: that sounds like so much fun! Yeah. Yeah,
1: it does. It does. I'm sadly not going to actually be there in Germany. I'm in uh, in very busy times with university. Sadly, it's uh <laughs> it's a miracle I'm able to do this actually. <laughs> but there's always time for for books and for conversation, so that's yeah. awesome so
0: you get to show paul around and and
1: uh... yeah i'll walk with them i don't i don't know what exactly the plan is but yeah hopefully you'll see a bit of the of the country he was there last year as well so uh that's that's fun i hope you Did you, enjoyed did you
0: meet up with him last year
1: last year i was in france while he was here oh, uh, okay so sadly no but tomorrow uh, is a good opportunity
0: uh-huh. so it'll be fun cool very so cool.
1: that's what's been going on yeah
0: yeah, and I thing. will, uh, let's let's put that in the description section, your channel. And um, yeah, if you have any other links that you want me to put in there, I will.
1: I think that's all good. Yeah, I have like my Spotify stuff. I'm actually speaking to John uh, next month, which is really exciting. John for Vicky. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just saw him a little tweet and then <laughs> he was like, sure, I'll do it. <laughs> so I have a million questions for this month. Do you man, have a so topic for him or? Oh no, I've just like, I very selfishly have a very big like log of questions that I have for him because I've listened to the meaning crisis thing like three times and I'm just filled with questions. So I'm like, just tell me. <laughs> so I think that's how it will go.
0: <laughs> John, just, just give me the definitions of all the words in your glossary, please.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. No, th- th- that is a separate discussion. That will be like uh, <laughs> a Bible, but uh, but no so exciting things coming and uh, similar I think similar to what you're doing but you're more you're much more um, capable of understanding scientific theories I think physics and all these things I don't know how you do it really I find it extremely impressive and I get this from I get this from my family members as well she's like how is she so good at (laughs) (laughs) at this but really you are and I know if you say you don't you don't but you can keep up And that's something very, uh, very admirable. So that's, Well, I can keep
0: up for that moment. (laughs) But then the next thing that comes along, all of the stuff that I learned for that moment, just out the door and the new stuff comes in. I guess I have a a filing system in my head that I just keep updated all the time. So, But I've forgotten more than I ever learned. That's for sure.
1: (laughs) Well, I guess it's not. It's, sometimes it's not about memory; it's about the participation and the, the understanding in the moment. Yeah, because we're all we're all going to lose yeah. the memory anyway.
0: And and I think if I do have a if I do have a skill, my skill is for being deeply curious about a lot of things. And so as I'm exploring all these different things, stuff pops out for me that ties. To, it. It's just this relevance realization thing that ties things together in my mind probably wouldn't tie it together in anybody else's mind the way it does in mind. And so, so I can kind of see this thread that moves through, but in order to explore that thread, I have to try to learn a lot of things, which is, um, uh, sometimes kind of exhausting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. Yeah. But, but you have uh...
0: lots of fun and I get to meet people <laughs> like you. So
1: for sure. Thank you so much for, uh, for this opportunity. It's been, it's been great fun really guys. This book is incredible. I have definitely not done it justice today, but uh, please yeah, do give it a me, reasons.
0: I have not done it justice <laughs> because, um, and I'm sure people are going to say, well, she was, that's not what happened on the second trip to the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, I mean, I made a lot of mistakes, but, but we it a general drift. So
1: that's good.
0: Really good talking to you, Lucas. Have a great evening. And, uh. A great, I guess Halloween is coming up, you said. So
1: it's coming up. My birthday is Halloween. So yeah, it would be a lot of fun.
0: Seriously, your birthday is yeah. on, on 1031?
1: Yeah, my dad's as well. So there's some symbolic stuff. I'll ask Jonathan about it.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. So um, my husband and my daughter' birthday are one day apart.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah. But I not, wonder what it means. Not
0: exactly the same day.
1: <laughs> anyway, okay. thank you. Thank you so okay. much. Bye-bye. I hope to speak to you again. See you.